0: We started a series a few weeks ago about kingdom culture. And we talk a lot at Faith Chapel about the kingdom of heaven. We talk about the Greek word kingdom, how it means authority and power, but we're really trying to help us establish the culture of the kingdom of heaven in our lives. So we've spent three weeks on it already, so I'm not gonna take a lot of time to catch you up with this. Uh, there's no way in five minutes I can talk about everything that we've talked about for the last three weeks, but I can give you the highlights And the highlights are this. Number one, when we talk about kingdom, the first thing that we want to do is define the word kingdom. And it means this, to have authority or ability to rule. So when Jesus said in Matthew 6, 10, we need to pray for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, he literally was saying, we need to ask for the ability to rule like heaven right here on earth. We want that here. We want that now. How do you know we're not going to need to, uh, to lay our hands on any sick people to recover in heaven? Okay, we're not going to need to be operating in deliverance ministry in heaven. We need that now. So quite simply, when we start talking about kingdom culture, the first thing that we have to, an understanding of is just the word kingdom, okay? It is the authority of heaven released to God's people on earth. We rule and reign now. Number two, let's define culture. And I believe we looked it up several different places. I think this one came from Texas A&M University. Culture, the way of life of a group of people, the behaviors, beliefs, values, and symbols that they accept, generally without thinking about them, and that are passed along by communication and imitated from one generation to the next. So we've got that up there. We'll leave it up there for a minute if you want to take a picture of it. That's a good definition of culture. There are all sorts of cultures on the planet, subcultures within our own community, right? There's all sorts of different cultures, and I think this is a pretty decent definition. By the way, one of the cultures that you have is a church culture. Have you ever brought a visitor to church, but you coached him on the way there because of church culture? Because there are things that we do in church that you don't do anyplace else, and I now mean, face it, where else do you gather with a group of people, and the first thing that you do is you lift your hands and sing for 30 minutes. Now, we're not going to change that, because that's a culture of worship. And so we're learning what it means to be a worshiper of the Lord, and we want people to understand the value of worship, So we're not going to change that. But lots of times when we shake hands, I've even heard Tim Hawkins refer to this that during handshake times, we say, "Go ahead and love on somebody. Go ahead and love on your neighbor." Do you use that like after, you know, walking out of the break room with your friends at work? Hey, before we go back out, let's just love on each other for a minute. And if you do, it has a completely different context than it has here, okay? But we kind of get it here. Oh, that means I'm supposed to shake hands and give somebody a hug and bless them and let them know that I haven't thought about them all week, but I'll fake it right now, right? Okay? So we've got kind of our own little culture. Um, I grew up in Columbia, Missouri. In Columbia, it's kind of they call it Como, it's just kind of the way that we operate down there in Como. And uh, I grew up there, and I grew up playing one of those childhood games that many of you have played. How many of you have ever played Duck, Duck, Goose? Classic, Duck, Duck, Goose. I went to North Central University at the time when I went there in 1987. It was still North Central Bible College. And as a freshman, I went there, and they had Welcome Week. And that was the week that all the freshmen came up a little bit earlier so that you could start to connect in small groups, get to know some people before all the upperclassmen arrived and they launched into the school year. So there's about 400 in this smaller school, 450, 500 freshmen that we all come in together. They break us into small groups. And the second night that we're in small groups, they were like, hey, we're going to play a kid's game. We're going to get to know each other. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to play Duck, Duck, Gray Duck. How many of you have ever heard of Duck, Duck, Gray Duck? Not one person in this room. Oh, we've got, okay, two. We have two. In the early service, we had three. Guess where they were from? Minnesota, North Dakota, and Wisconsin. Because up north, they don't play duck, duck, goose. They play duck, duck, gray duck. How stupid is that, right? Yeah, hell, I mean, that's... So we're up there, and they're like, we're going to play Duck, Duck, Gray Duck. I'm like, well, what's Duck, Duck, Gray Duck? And they're like, well, we get in a circle, and we walk around, and we go Duck, Duck, Duck. And when you go Gray Duck, you run opposite directions. I'm like, oh, you mean Duck, Duck, Goose. When I said Duck, Duck, Goose, there was a roar of laughter. What are you talking about? I'm like, that's Duck, Duck, Goose. No, it's not. It's Duck, Duck, Gray Duck. I was the only one from Missouri. And from about halfway down Iowa and south, it's Duck, Duck, Goose. But you get up north, it's Duck, Duck, Gray Duck. And how do you know they're wrong? wrong. Horribly wrong. But it's cultural. I felt like, how many remember Twilight Zone? I felt like I was in the weirdest episode. I'm like, what am I doing with these morons playing duck, duck, gray duck? This isn't even right. But it was completely cultural. It was kind of my first understanding of how different just the regions where we live. We can all look at things so culturally different. And I think even sometimes when it comes to the church... We go over to go on a missions project, and I think that we hold the value of our culture up just as high as we do the value of the message of the gospel. And if we're trying to give people American Christianity, we're gonna be off the mark because American Christianity isn't necessarily hitting what Jesus has for us. We need to give the kingdom, so we need to understand the kingdom. There's a culture of the kingdom, and we wanna grow in that. Um, so, what, what are the ways that we do it? Number three, the transformation of the mind is essential. How many would love to see the the kingdom of heaven or the culture of heaven more in our own county? How many would kind of enjoy that? Okay. How many would like to see the culture of heaven more in your own church? Okay. How many would like to see it in your home? In your life? In your mind? And that's probably where it starts. Because Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And the Greek word that he used for repent was not the word for throwing yourself on the floor and beating yourself up with a hammer saying, God, I'm sorry, I'm such a wretch. It was simply change your thinking. Jesus said, change your thinking. The authority of heaven is right here. You need to look at it that way. And one of the first things that I understand when it comes to culture, it's got to start right here between the ears. Am I looking at my life from the kingdom culture perspective? And if I'm not, Lord, help me to do it. One of the first things that we, that we deal with in that is identity. So number four, everything flows from identity, even if it's a false one. People do what they do because of what they believe about themselves, right? Jesus knew exactly who he was. He came down speaking on behalf of his father, and he said, I'm a witness to my father, and I know who I am. And they look at him, they say, you're an illegitimate child. And he's like, actually, if you would hear the voice of my father, my father's confirming who I am to you. Jesus knew exactly who he was. Listen, if Jesus didn't know who he was, he was crazy, right? There's no middle ground with him. You either have to accept him as the son of God, or he was a crazy liar. And he wasn't a crazy liar. He knew knew his identity. He knew who he was. Do we know who we are? Do I believe who Jesus is? Do I believe what Jesus did? Do I believe what Jesus has done in me? And do I believe what he can do through me? You know, we've got two girls. You guys know that. We never have to coach Sophia about being Sophia. Sophie's just Sophie. Sophie. I, she doesn't. She's she's never got up and said, "Hey, Dad, I just really want to be Sophia today," because she is Sophia, fully embraced. Right? You spend enough time with Sophia, you're like, "Whew! I've had a little too much Sophia for today." Okay, she needs to spend some time with her mother. They need a shopping trip. That'll be fantastic. She's never asked me, "Lord, uh, Dad, help me to be Sophia," because she is that by birth. And I, we're all, oh, Lord, help me to become what we already are. How many of you believe that Christ paid the price for you and you've asked him to be the king of your life? Now, you might have done it in a different way. You might have said, come into my heart. You might have said, Lord, I'll follow you. You might have said it a different way, but at the end of the day, you believe that Christ paid the price for you. He's your king. Guess what? You've been born from above. You've been born again. Everything has started fresh. You've already become. You can't become more than you already became because that that happens at birth. You accept him. Now, here's the challenge. There are certain things that we expect Christians to do, right, and if we're not necessarily doing those things, then we start to question if they have become, because we put such an emphasis on what they're doing or not doing. Look at this, here's a thought. Satan understands who we are in Christ Jesus better than we do. No wonder he spends so much time speaking against it. I think if Christians began to understand what their identity is in Christ, we would live completely differently. We would live with such victory, peace, trust, anxiousness would be a thing of the past, but we don't believe and we don't walk out everything that Jesus says about it. Here's the deal though the enemy knows who we are in Christ Jesus, he knows the scriptures. He knows that the spirit of God in us is greater than his spirit. He knows that the presence of God flowing through us defeats him. He knows that when he is commanded to back off from something in the name of Jesus Christ, he has to let go. He knows all of that stuff. And because he knows it, he wants to convince us that we're outside, that we're worthless, that we don't matter. That God isn't listening to our prayers, that we've had one too many sins, one too many failures, one too many mess-ups for God to really use us. I've heard people say to me, Pastor Brad, I've just done too many things. Where can you find that in the scriptures? You have a demoniac living in the Gadarenes that is being chained, living among the tombs, and the only clothing that he has on are the chains. The guy's naked, demon-possessed by a legion of devils. And Jesus sets him free. And he says, go and tell your family everything that I've done for you. He takes us from the worst condition and the worst circumstances, and he changes our DNA structure from darkness to light. We're not who we used to be. If he can do that from a, for a demoniac, what can he do for me? What can he do for you? I mean, ladies and gentlemen, it's about what we become once we accept what Jesus has done, not what we become once we start doing it better. Because it's not about us, it's about him. Now, when we're talking about kingdom, we're talking about authority. When we talk about culture, we're talking about a shift of mindset. There's no way at Faith Chapel we're going to walk out kingdom culture if I'm not doing it in my life. Our family's not gonna do it if I'm not doing it in my mind. If my wife's not doing it in her mind, we have to come into partnership with this. So one of the things that I think we need to understand about the kingdom culture, here we go, first point for the day. By the way, last point of the day, because I got spending a lot of time on it, so I wasn't able to get to point two. But it's a kingdom of light. God's word says that it's a kingdom of the son of God. It's a kingdom of the sons and daughters of God. It also says that it's a kingdom of light. This kingdom culture, it's a basiliah of light. So let's talk about it. Look in Ephesians chapter five, verses eight through 10. Reading from the NIV, we'll put it up here for you. The apostle says to the church, for you were once darkness, I'll stop there. Five words that I misread my whole life. Has anybody else misread that? I had a tendency to read it for you were once in darkness. I added the word in, for some reason, because in my mindset, Brad was trapped in darkness and needed to be brought into the light. It wasn't that Brad was darkness, because I was. I was separate from God. No righteous thing within me. My first words as a baby were m m m mine Like all of our children when we think they're saying mom. Because we're selfish. Right? Well, not my kid. He's an only child. Give him an opportunity. Put him in a room with a couple other two-year-olds and let's see how it goes. Selfish. Separate. In darkness, living for me, it was about me from day one. And I suspect we were all the same way. And it was about impulse. It was about just following what felt right at the time, no matter who it hurt or who it touched, because I was going by natural instinct, at least that's what Scripture says about me. And that doesn't mean that I was in darkness, but I was darkness. So fundamentally, now that I've accepted Jesus, I realize I was once darkness, but now I'm light in the Lord. Once again, I've misread that my whole life. I was in darkness, but now I've been brought into the light. Now, there are other verses that say I've been brought into the light, but it's not this one. This one says, literally, I've been changed. That if I could see into the spirit realm, I would see somebody dark that accepts the Lord literally become light. I mean, Jesus said he was the light of the world. As a matter of fact, he said that he lives in us and we're the sons and daughters of his. We're sons and daughters of light. When you walk into a dark place, you're the light that emanates into it. We've had a a complete change from the inside out. So live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Now I'm just going to take you to my structure, and I don't know what yours was, I can only speak from mine, but in my life, I had a tendency to look at this backwards, that if I live good enough, and in righteousness, and in truth, that I'm being what the light is supposed to be, and yet scripture teaches it's the other way around, that if I accept what God's done for me, I become the light. And as I, as because I become the light, as I walk that out, goodness and righteousness and truth will be evident. Let me ask you this, though. How many of you know that goodness and righteousness and truth isn't evident the first moment that somebody asks Christ to become the Lord of their life? Only a few of us know that. Okay, thank you. All right. One of the struggles that we have when we talk about kingdom culture is church culture. One of the struggles that we have is we want instant sanctification. Pastor Brad, what's sanctification? Sanctification simply means to be separated from sin and dedicated to God. And I do believe that in a moment when I say, Lord, become the Lord of my life, I am yours. I am separated from sin and I am dedicated to God. He has done a work in me that you can't take away. But I also know that I still have a soul with wounds, with memories, with experiences that affects who I am. My spirit is made perfect. God does a work in me that nobody nobody can take away. But now I begin to partner with what he's doing in my soul, my emotions, my will, and my mind. I mean, that's why God gives us verses like, be transformed by what? The renewing of our mind. You might have given your life to Christ yesterday, but it doesn't mean you have the mind of Christ today. How many of you have spent some time with somebody that's an older mentor in the Lord, and they show you something, you're like, oh my goodness, I've never even seen that before. Well, you weren't saved into instant knowledge. You were saved into the family, right? I've shared this with you before, so I can go there again, because once you've opened this kind of stuff, it's easier to go back to it. My dad was a very challenging person to live with at times when I was younger. And by all sense of the definition, he was physically abusive, okay? He, it, just, it just is what it is. And I remember when I was in high school, my dad gave his life to Christ on a Sunday night. And my youth pastor on Wednesday night at youth service said, hey, Brad, how's your dad changed since he gave his life to Christ? Have you seen any difference? And I said, he's only hit me one time this week. But it was true, because in four days, he'd only hit me once. That was a massive improvement. Well, Brad, you probably deserved it. Well, that's not where we're going right now. I might have deserved it. But a man that had out-of-control anger, that once he gave his life to Christ, at least in four days, it it cut back to one. And I, re, I literally remember walking this out as it got less and less and less. Well, Pastor Brad, that's still abuse. That still wasn't right. I get it. I understand it. You're right. But we can't expect somebody that gives their life to Christ on Monday to walk in and, and, and with the perfection of Jesus on a Tuesday. Yes, God's made them perfect, but they're being made perfect. Are you following me? So this is where church gets messy, because as an evangelist, I'm called to reach out to those that are lost, that are in darkness, and I also want a safe place for my children to worship and to grow in the faith. And sometimes these worlds come together. We did a safe ride from Faith Chapel. We provided for four years a safe ride for drunk drivers from a local bar every Friday night. It was before the bar shut down over in Cottleville. Every Friday night, we'd have a couple of guys over there with a church van. This one died on them a couple of times that were going to be beaten up in two weeks. Thank you, Jesus, for that opportunity. But we would have guys give, give guys a ride home. They just, they, they weren't in a condition to get themselves home, and because we believe in life, we wanted to protect their lives, and we wanted to protect the lives of somebody else they might encounter. So we get, were you justifying their alcoholism? No, we were giving them a ride home. Were you saying that alcoholism is okay? No, we were saying that we love you in spite of the problem. Okay? So let's say you meet a guy there that sleeps with a different girl every Friday night. He's the guy at the bar. He's just going. He's finding one that's drunk enough. She'll go to bed with him. And we watched it happen. You'd be in there, and you'd watch the guy go from place, and he's just hoping to get lucky with one of them. And let's say that guy gets lucky with a different girl every Friday and every Saturday, and one day he turns to us for a ride home and we give him a ride home and he asks Christ to be the Lord of his life. And let's say that he went from getting lucky every Friday and every Saturday to only getting lucky once that month because he was trying to be better. Now in my old religious hat, I'm like, wow, nothing really happened to him at all. But that's not the way Jesus looks at it. Jesus looks at a guy that's been partnering with brokenness for how long? adding to his flesh at every opportunity that he's went from sleeping around every weekend to my goodness, he's trying to follow after me and he blew it once this month. You know what? We're gonna do better next month, son, because I love you. It's kind of weird talk, isn't it? I think part of the problems with church culture is we've we've made it as clean as possible. And it wasn't clean when Jesus did it. This lady's caught in adultery, right, which I first of all go, where's the guy? Because my understanding of adultery is there would be two people involved. But the lady's caught in adultery, they're ready to kill her, and Jesus says, hey, if you're without sin, go ahead and be the first one to throw the first rock in her face. And they all drop the rocks and they walk away because they know that they can't do it because they've all got issues in their own life. And Jesus looks at her and he doesn't say to her, hey, We're under grace. Go sleep with whoever you want. He didn't do that. But he loved her, and he said, hey, go leave your life of sin. Do we honestly think she never made another mistake in her life? I mean, let me ask you, that might not be your mistake, but how many still think thoughts you shouldn't think? Do things you shouldn't do? Boy, there's only one. Donna, thank you for being honest. Donna Biddle, you can always count on somebody from Arkansas to be truthful. All right? I mean, we gotta be honest about this, folks. I love Jesus. I love him more than anything. And there are times I'm quite disappointed with the thoughts that come through my mind. I'm like, where did that come from? I've been living for Jesus for more than half my life. I quite a bit more than half my life. And that thought still is the first thought that Jesus come into my life. Come into my mind, help me to walk out what you say I am. I'm not darkness, I'm light. This is by birth, not by behavior. 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now this is another little, uh, little look into light. It's referring to walking in the light of Christ, Jesus is in the light, and as we're walking in that light, something beautiful happens. It's called fellowship. The Greek word is koinonia. It means sharing and personal access. That when we're walking in the light, just like Jesus is in the light, we have personal access into one another's lives. That's part of what helps us to walk out the light that we already are. Jesus brought guys into a close relationship and they were constantly bickering with one another. If you've got this image of the disciples walking with halos over their head and never doing anything wrong, then can I challenge you to go ahead and lay that image aside? They're walking along arguing about who the greatest among them was. Jesus is leading the pack, and they're going, well, i got to be greater than you. He called me first. Well, you can't be greater than me. You were a fisherman, for crying out loud. You still stink, right? At least I came from a a family with a little bit of clout and a little bit of of influence, and they're arguing about these things. And Jesus stops, and he looks at them, and he asks the question, hey, do you think that uh, uh, the masters want to be served or to serve? Well, we we want to be, where's he going? If you want to be the greatest in my kingdom, you need to be the one that washes the feet of others. And he didn't just declare it, he demonstrated it, and he washed their own feet. I mean, these guys were jockeying for position. You can even tell in the way that they wrote the Gospels, they blame everything on Peter when they can. And Peter said... And you'll notice it's almost like it's in a little, parenth- a little parenthetical statement. And Peter said, as well as the rest of us, <laughs> right? We don't want to share that blame. Well, let's blame it on the big mouth guy, okay? It wasn't perfect. It was messy. He's walking it out with them. He's giving them authority. They don't even know if they have the authority. Then they use the authority. Then they're bragging about the authority. Are you sure I have the authority? Yes, you have the authority. Demons, be gone. <laughs> I have the authority. Jesus, I have the authority. I know you have the authority. Who cares? Rejoice that your name's written in heaven. What? We don't get this guy. We don't get him. It's because we're trying to walk out what we already are. They had koinonia. They were able to speak in each other's lives. He was able to look at them and say, hey, you're getting too big for your britches. Back off a little bit. Hey, quit jockeying for position. Serve one another. No, James, John, Andrew, it's not about you. It's about them. Don't don't keep the little kids from coming to me. How dare you do that? Bring the kids in. Oh, this place is so beautiful. We need to go down from this mountain because we've got a job to do. He's constantly speaking into their life. Who's speaking into your life? If we're walking in the light, we have connection with one another. Personal access and sharing. Let's go to the next one. Romans 13, 12. I love this one. The night is nearly over. That is an inference to the fact that Jesus is coming. Okay, the night's nearly over. The day's almost here. So put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now, we don't put aside the deeds of darkness so that we can become light because we already are light. But because we already are light, we don't want to partner with darkness. So we put on the armor of light. How many of you have a great imagination? How many of your parents told you to quit having a great imagination? So how many of your children have a great imagination? I like watching posts on Facebook from time to time. Okay, I like that. We've got a family that their son takes Batman everywhere that he goes. I don't know if that family had, the Jacobs family would know who I'm referring to today. But Batman goes Everywhere. And I love the, the pictures that we, Batman's swimming, Batman's doing this, he's, he's everywhere, Batman's everywhere. And I'm like foster that imagination, right? Foster that, that creativity. Um, I've got an imagination when it comes to the things of God. When I'm praying for somebody to receive healing of a knee that's gone bad, there are times I just say, Lord, would you give them a new knee from the knee room in heaven? Is there a knee room in heaven? I don't know. But if he can do exceeding abundantly above all I can ask or think, then it's not a problem for him. So if there's a knee room in heaven, then just go ahead and give him a new knee. Because this knee's messed up. We just need a new one. We need a new knee. You're following me with that, right? Let your imagination go. And when I think about this, I don't think of myself in darkness trying to put on armor to transform me. I think of myself as I'm not partnering with what I'm not. I am light and I'm putting on the armor of light. And when I think about armor, I tend to think about the armor of God. How about you? And I kind of imagine putting on this breastplate and light shining forth, not because I'm so amazing but because he is. And I can only put on the armor of light because he's made me light and he is the light that I'm putting on. And I want to think that when I walk into a room, that the armor of God is shining from me. And every place I put my feet, light beams are going forth because I have the authority of the kingdom everywhere that I go, even if it's Target, even if it's Walmart. (laughs) That place does need transformation. Can I get an amen? Here's a thought. We put on the armor of light because we are light. We don't put it on to become it. We put it on because we are it. Colossians 1, 9 through 12, last verses for today. All God's people said, we can't believe we got here this quickly. Thank you. Verses 9 through 12. Now, this is the church in Colossae. Personally, I think the name Colossi is just a great name. Where are you from? I'm from Colossae. Doesn't that just, don't you feel like you should have like a cup of tea when you say that with your pinky out? Where, where did you where were you brought up? I was brought up in Colossi. How about you, Higginsville, Higginsville, right? So Colossi. So for this reason, since the day we heard about you, her heard about who? Well, the Christians in Colossi. Since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you, and I love the prayer that we get to see that he prayed. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. As a matter of fact, I'm going to pause here, and rather than just reading the prayer that Paul prayed over the church in Colossae, I'm going to make this declaration over Faith Chapel. God, in Jesus' name, would you continually fill us with knowledge of your will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that we may live a life worthy of the Lord and please you in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. May we, God, be strengthened with all power according to your glorious might so that we might have great endurance and patience and that we would give joyful thanks to you, Father. You have qualified us to share in the inheritance of your holy people in the kingdom of light amen you receive that this is a great prayer i need the knowledge and wisdom of the spirit how about you tell you something else i need is great endurance walking the christian walk isn't as easy as i thought it was going to be but pastor brad god's done the work and he saved your life what what left is there for you to do to walk out everything that he's done for me? We shared the verse earlier, hope deferred can make the heart sick. Have you been hoping for something long enough and the enemy's been fighting it long enough that what you've been hoping for has almost become a burden? It's a battle. We need great endurance. We need great patience. But when I read this, at least in where I was brought up, It says, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people. I used to separate that like there was a holier group than this group. I'm praying you'll have a knowledge of his will. You'll have a knowledge of the spirit. You'll have great endurance so that one of these days you can be just as holy as the real people of God. Have you ever felt that way? You're not just—you're as holy as everybody else? You know, that, that title goes to somebody else. In my family, you know who it went to? Grandma Riley. Grandma Riley was the holiest among us. Biblically, is that accurate? No. Theologically, is it correct? Absolutely not. But practically speaking, I grew up thinking nobody was holier than Grandma Riley. When Grandma Riley read her Bible, she read King James. That already gets you to a higher level of heaven. You understand that. She read King James. Not only did she read King James, but when she would pray, she would pray King James. There were times she'd break into a little English accent while she was doing it. Not only did she read King James, pray King James, she never put on the devil's lipstick. Never. You know what the devil's lipstick is, right? It's red. Ladies, I'm telling you, you need to be careful. Don't wear red lipstick. We were brought up in one of those churches. If you wore makeup, it's of the devil. If you wore pants, it was of the devil. Now, I probably ought to pause for just a second because I do appreciate that you're wearing pants. But in the church I was brought up in, ladies weren't allowed to wear them, they had to wear dresses. If it wasn't a dress, it it wasn't holy. So, ladies, it's amazing. You had to wear dresses, you couldn't wear the devil's lipstick, and you had to read the King James Version. I'd go over and spend the night with my grandma, and I'd, she'd get up 5, 5.30 in the morning, go out to the living room, kneel down at the couch, because how many you know that God's only going to listen to you between 5 and 5.30 in the morning? That's when holy people pray. So she'd be down at the couch. She'd be breaking into King James English, praying for her family, and I'd be thinking to myself, I can never be that holy. She might be used in a tongue or an interpretation of the church and say, the Lord thy God would say, and I'm like, well, of course, grandma's God, of course. She doesn't wear lipstick. She doesn't wear pants. She is absolutely God. You're not even following me on that pant thing, are you? You're not going there. I thought that holy people were a group of people that I could never connect with. Because you guys are just a little bit more righteous than the rest of us. It's like Dan and Carol Rowden here at Faith Chapel. We all understand that there's us and there's Dan and Carol. Oh, I just... Just a step. That's not what Paul's saying at all. He's praying all of these things because he's the one that qualifies us to be holy. He's the holiness in us. He's the holiness that transformed us. How on earth are we a kingdom of light if we're not holy? And he's already said that we're a kingdom of light. And that we used to be darkness and now we are light. So I think we probably need to define holiness. So there's the question, what is holiness? And that's what I'd like to talk to you about today with the rest of our time. <laughs> what is holiness? Because in my life, it was grandma without makeup and the King James Version. Okay, and a thus saith the Lord. That's what, what was it for you? Anybody else kind of similar memories there? How many of you was the Catholic priest? Okay, with the smells and the bells and the stuff. And wow, that guy, he, he doesn't even use the bathroom. He's so holy. Okay? Whatever your context is, it's probably wrong. The, the Hebrew word for holy is kada. Kada. Kadah means this set apart and sacred. Has nothing to do with don't do this, don't do that. It's a designation. As a matter of fact, God's word says be holy because what? I am holy. And I always saw that as the unattainable verse in the Bible. I mean, how am I gonna be as holy as God, right? How do you know that God doesn't have to work at being holy? He's just simply God. Especially if you understand it in the context of the passage that he's set apart and he's sacred. Who can we compare to God? God, your love, it's as deep as the oceans, really? He spoke the oceans into existence. Lord, your love is bright as the sun. The sun that he didn't even create till the fourth day? After he created light on the first day? Let that baffle your mind for a little bit. He created light before he created the, the source of light. He just did it. So every time the angels fly around his presence, what do they say? Holy, you're separate. You're, what can I even say, God? You're You're amazing. You're just, you're sacred. When God said, be holy because I am holy, he wasn't saying, try to behave like I behave. God already is who he is. He is saying, just like I am sacred, just like I am set apart, you are sacred. You are set apart. And think about this for just a second. I can look over at Adam Adam, Adam Arnold. It's easy for me to say. And I can say with full assurance of faith, Adam, you are sacred, not just to your wife. You are sacred. I can look at Jeremy Jacobs, and I can say, Jeremy, you're set apart. You're absolutely set apart. And that's what holiness is. Does that mean that Adam and Jeremy do everything perfectly? Jeremy, maybe. Adam, definitely not. No. No. Because, it, folks, listen, it's not about behavior. It's about what he says we are. Think about it. Holiness is not a behavior. It's a designation. If more of us could wrap our minds around this. It's not a behavior, it's a designation. But don't I have to do these things to be holy? No. We do these things because we've been made holy. You know, we've already read the verse that that the fruit of of light is goodness, righteousness, what was the other word? And truth. You see, I grew up thinking that if I live good enough and righteous enough and truthfully enough that I'll be light. But that's still not what it was saying. It's because I am light that goodness, righteousness, and truth is even possible. I don't know if you've done a lot of studying about horticulture and I read every once in a while just because God does so many different things talking about reaping and sowing but one of the things that I find fascinating and I remember discovering this in Sophie's first grade reading material in science it made this statement it was like a revelation to me it said the fruit protects the seed the fruit protects the seed my whole life, I grew up thinking, let's think about an apple tree. It grows and you're waiting for the apples to produce. Why? So that you can eat an apple. The apple tree isn't thinking about, I need to start producing apples for people to eat. The apple tree is thinking about producing for the next generation to thrive. The, apple's not about, the apple tree's not about the apple. The apple tree is about the seed. It wants more seeds to be produced so that from generation to generation more apple trees can be produced. The fruit protects the seed. When the apple falls from the tree and it lands on the ground and that seed dies and it comes back to life, everything that's needed for that seed to be healthy is right there in that fruit that is rottening and decaying around that seed and that seed begins to receive everything it needs from the fruit until it becomes strong enough for the roots to break into the soil and to start to go deep so that that apple tree can grow. Fruit protects the seed. You see, the reason that fruit matters, righteousness, truth, the reason that the goodness, the reason that it matters is for the future generation for the work that God's doing in our life. I want some people of righteousness and truth and goodness around my children because I want them to be protected by people like you. I want that. But I also recognize that it's not the fruit that shows me who you are. What shows me who you are is the simple fact that God's spoken that you're light in me and you're learning to walk out the fruit. Maybe here's an easier way to say it. A farmer doesn't plant in the morning and expect to reap in the evening, but we do. We lead a guy to Christ on Wednesday, and we want him to behave like every other Christian by Sunday. And I'm just here to say that's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair to lead a stripper to Christ and expect her to come in dressed like every other lady on Sunday morning. That takes time, and it's messy. And my religion doesn't like it. But that's what the kingdom does. The kingdom reaches us in our darkness, transforms us to light, and it takes a while for the fruit to begin to show itself. That lady that accepted Christ Wednesday, that was dancing from a pole on Wednesday, you know what she is if she's accepted Christ? She's the exact same thing you are. She's a holy daughter or a holy child. I'm not getting any amens today. Tell you, if I was preaching this someplace else, people would be excited, but you guys hear me all the time. I know how it is. Holiness is not a behavior. And if we would accept this, maybe we wouldn't live with such guilt and condemnation when we make a mistake. Because mistakes will be made. But it doesn't change the fact that he's made us light. Let's, let's wrap it up with 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21. I I don't know how come the hour and a half of second service is always so much less than the hour and a half of first service. I don't even understand. In a large house, let's kind of picture the house as the world, okay? Just the world in general. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes and some for ignoble, all right? Not noble. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be an instrument for noble purposes made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. I'm going to cut to the quick with this illustration. I'll do it quickly as I can. My mom grew up in a real poor family. She grew up in Kabul, Missouri. How many of you have ever driven through Kabul, Missouri? Okay, she grew up in Kabul. When she was in high school, so we're talking the the mid-60s, they still had an outhouse. Okay? Some of you tell your kids what that even is later, all right? So in the mid-60s, she still had, they still had an outhouse. Um, she said it was pretty fancy. It was a three-hole outhouse. There was a hole for dad, a hole for mom, and then there was the kid hole. And I'm thinking, did like three of them go in there? And, anyway, but can't imagine just sitting there and having family discussion. But, um, but because they had an outhouse, they lacked indoor plumbing in Kabul, In January and February, two, three o'clock in the morning, if you wake up and you need to use the restroom, it can be pretty cold outside. And so they had bedpans. I don't even know where I'm going with this. I don't even know what a bedpan is. You don't cook in bed, so you're not, all right. A bedpan was what you would use as your porta potty. When you woke up and it was zero degrees outside, and you didn't want to go to the outhouse, you would do whatever you needed to do in the bedpan and when you woke up in the morning, your first responsibility was to get the bedpan out to the outhouse. So it's the first thing you're supposed to do. Now, if you're a family that believed in good hygiene, not only did you have your bedpan, but you would also have a basin. And the basin is where you would wash your hands after using the bedpan. Because how many believe washing after using the facilities is an important thing to do? Okay. Can you also imagine the possibilities Two in the morning. How many of you wake up bright-eyed, bushy-tailed at two in the morning? How many are you are a little foggy? Might not necessarily know where you are. You just know you need to pee. You know what I'm talking about? Where am I? I don't know. I have to use the bathroom, right? Is there a possibility that you could cross up the bedpan in the basin? Do you think in the years of people that did this to deal with the cold and using the restroom? And the, is, there, is there a chance that one time somebody crossed it up? And I'm not trying to go high school with my humor and I'm not trying to be gross and I'm not trying to make you leave. If you leave, it's just a byproduct. But I'm, I'm bringing us a thought here. You don't want to mess up the vessel that you're using when one of them is for using the restroom and the other one might be used for getting fresh water out of to wash your hands or maybe even take a drink. How many don't drink out of your toilet? About half. That's the same as first service, by the way. The same as first service. So maybe we could have all the non-toilet drinkers go to the same service together and we won't have to perel so much. But um, how many of you don't drink out of your toilet but your dog has? You've walked in, you're like, oh, and then they lick you. You drank out of the toilet. So how many of you have drank out of your toilet? All right. Now, not trying to go high school with this, I'm just being real. How many of you would be comfortable Drinking water from the basin if somebody had crossed it up? Even just a little bit. Maybe they even stopped midstream. They got started, went, oh, wrong vessel, switched over. It's okay, it's just a little bit of contamination. No. There are vessels for noble and vessels for ignoble purposes. A toilet is an ignoble vessel. It's not for nobility, but it's needed. Hey, let me throw this at you. You know what a toilet is? It's holy. What's the definition? It's set apart. A toilet is set apart for a specific purpose, just like a water basin is set apart for a specific purpose. I'll wrap it up with this. If you've been set apart for a special purpose, why would you continue to put stuff in your life that contaminates what God's done? You're a vessel for noble purposes. The apostle Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter what was it? Chapter 4 verse 3. He said, "For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry." It's pretty pretty straightforward. If you filled your life with this stuff before, and God has made you a vessel of noble purposes, he's already done that. Because he's already done that, why would you contaminate it with any of this? You see what he's saying to us about holiness? Holiness is what he's done. He's separated us as sacred. And as I walk in that, I'm not going to be pouring this into a vessel that he's already made whole. Why would I do that? Kingdom culture. It's a culture of light, goodness, truth. It's a culture that you can hug the most, can, uh, the most corrupted vessel in the world and know that that vessel is not going to corrupt you at all because of what he's already done for you as a matter of fact, he might use you that that corrupted vessel becomes very pure and very noble and very beautiful in his sight. We like testimonies because it represents when he takes us from being a bedpan to be in a basin. And that's a big deal.